0: and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? <clears throat> and how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls.
1: Our Father, uh, we've just said it. Our weakness is safe if you're strong. Our confusion is okay if you like to clarify. And even our hard hearts are not the end of the story if you are one who touches them and softens them. So tonight, Would it just not be a moment where we read a story and see how it happened for others, but would would what happened here happen here in our midst? Would you show again to us that you are alive and active and gracious and patient and loving and powerful? Do that for us. I am a weak man speaking, and my friends are weak, and they're listening, and we need your help. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if Bill Murray is a name, you know, but you should, because he's like a global mega superstar. He got his start like Saturday Night Live a long, long, long time ago, but then um, he's of Ghostbusters fame and a bunch of Wes Anderson movies and uh, your parents know him. So if you go home and talk about Bill Murray to your parents, they'll start kind of parroting out Bill Murray lines. But a lot of you know him too, because he's kind of come back into the limelight more recently. And the way he's come back into the limelight recently is uh, there are some websites that began to get more and more attention. Uh, One of them is called BillMurraySightings.com. And there's a few other blogs like this. And what they are is like clearing houses where anybody and everybody can submit their Bill Murray encounter or their Bill Murray story. And it's amazing. You can go there. Please, not right now, but later. You can go there and you can read through all these random, everyday, plain Jane people like you and me who were just going about their lives and had this dramatic encounter with a megastar, and it changed them. Well, this was such a big deal, and word was getting around about these websites that some director heard about it and decided he wanted to make a documentary about Bill Murray sightings. And it popped up on Netflix this summer. Maybe you've watched it Bill Murray Stories. Uh, this is the write up on uh, Netflix. It's got 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, so maybe you should watch it. Bill Murray Stories, Life Lessons Learned from a Mythical Man. It's one man's journey to find meaning in Bill Murray's many unexpected adventures with everyday people. It's an inside look at rare and never-before-seen footage of, co- of the comedic icon participating in stories previously presumed to be urban legend. Whether it be singing karaoke at night with strangers or crashing a kickball game in the middle of the afternoon, Bill Murray lives in the moment. And by doing so, creates magic with real people. So that's the write-up. And I watched it. And it is actually a phenomenal documentary. And there was one particular scene in it that when I think of the documentary, I just think of this scene. And it's kind of a mishmash of cell phone video and then interviews with the people who are there after the fact. Uh, It's the week of South by Southwest Music Festival in Austin, Texas. There is a guy who goes to a bar to kind of paste up a flyer. One of his friends is doing a house show. It's not connected with South by Southwest at all. These people are clearly not famous and not well followed. Later that night, they have their house show, uh, and about 60 people are cramped into this hot, sweaty little living room. While that guy earlier that day was putting up the the poster on the corkboard of the house show, he sees Bill Murray in that bar by himself, and he's like, It's Bill Murray! So he goes over there and he does like the selfie thing and gets an autograph and Murray's really gracious. And, you know, yeah, man, of course I'll give you an autograph. And he just tells him as a joke, you should come to our show tonight. And Bill Murray kind of chuckles and waves and, you know, he, he leaves and he doesn't even mention it to the others. Cause he's just like, there's no way he's going to come. Well, about midnight rolls around and they're like two and a half hours into this house show in their living room. And in walks Bill Murray, no camera crew, no friends, just Bill Murray. And he comes in, and what's amazing is, like, he goes straight for kind of the mosh pit in the middle of this living room. And, like, one minute in, he's just drenched in sweat. He's, like, moving to the music. He's with the people. They're all trying to get pictures with him, and he's kind of indulging them. But a few more minutes into that, he he, he gets up on stage, and he's like, you guys are awesome. This music's amazing. And he goes, do you know this song? They're like, well, we can figure it out. They start trying out the notes. He sings a few songs with them. And he's just the life of the party. Cops come at some point on a noise complaint. Bill Murray goes outside to kind of give them some pictures and say, if we unplug the amp, can we keep going? And they're like, yeah. Two o'clock in the morning rolls around and people look around like, did he leave without saying bye? Like this was amazing. Did he just disappear as randomly as he showed up? Someone goes to the kitchen to grab something and Bill Murray is there and he found rubber gloves under their sink and he is washing their dishes Stacked up dirty dishes in these dudes house and he is there washing them. When he finishes, he bids adieu and goes back into wherever Bill Murray lives. Who knows? He just descended after that. And, um, <laughs> the interviews of these people, it was amazing. They were changed by that encounter. They're saying things. I mean, I, it was probably a year later that they got interviewed for this documentary and they're saying things to the interviewer, like, my life changed that night i learned how to be present in the moment i learned how to not let cool opportunities pass me by i learned how to say yes i learned how to be all there when i'm somewhere i learned that little people matter and actually have cool lives it changed them and all these other people with bill murray stories It changed them as well now some of you um, probably should be wondering where in the world is this going with the passage that drew just read with Pentecost and the pouring out of the spirit of Jesus upon people like you and me. Here's the connection. Yeah, it's a stretch. Let's just put that out there. So work with me here. But Bill Murray is a itty bitty shadowy, fuzzy glimmer of what the spirit of Jesus is like. And how the spirit of Jesus moves in our world. And here's how this spirit prefers the company of the average, the ordinary, the plain Jane, the weak, the normally unimpressive and unnoticed. The thing about Bill Murray is this director called him repeatedly for a year, called his publicist to try to arrange an interview, get his side of the story. Why do you do this? Why don't you spend your time kind of hobnobbing with all the celebrities like every other celebrity? Why these people? Isn't this draining? Uh, Bill Murray never called him back. He's not controllable. You can't schedule an interview with Bill Murray. You can't ask him to come to your birthday party. He just shows up when he wants, how he wants. And and this is the thing that's so impacting. I could show up at a house party at... 11 p.m. and they're calling the cops. Who's this weird guy that can't dance here? But Bill Murray is this mega superstar. He's just this, this glowing celebrity. And when he and the question, the reason there's blogs about him and documentaries is why do you prefer to be with these kind of people? What was so impressive about that guy hanging up the poster? That kind of seems a little bit lame like I don't want to be in that room that night. A tiny little house party when there's South by Southwest happening and I can hear it like billboard people spirit of jesus prefers to be in the company of the unimpressive the weak the overlooked the forgotten he fills any room he's in with the fullness of his presence and it's a transforming presence i'm relying on you a little bit to remember what drew read and to look down as i'm talking to see the connections but when the spirit of jesus comes into a room, inhabits a room, invades a room. It is full of his presence. And he deepens the life and the joy and the clarity of that room. It illumines things. People are changed by it. And again, you see the tiniest of the the Bill Murray analogy. Not, I, I just learned how to be more present because of the spirit of the resurrected Jesus. More like I see truth for the first time ever. I know myself. I understand what God is like. Dots are connecting when he is present. He fills a room with his presence. He's humble. He's humble. You already get a glimmer of that because of the kind of people he has a reputation for preferring to be around. But he's also humble in the sense that when he comes, he comes to serve. The last thing, I mean, it's already a stretch to think Bill Murray's going to come into my house and, and join in, in the party and congratulate me on being an awesome guitarist. And say this party's awesome. But th- it's, it's too much that he's in my kitchen washing my dishes. Almost at an embarrassing level. Someone so high would stoop so low into my life, the real stuff of my life. Spirit of Jesus, the one who who, when he comes, he comes in humility. Now keep in mind how radical this is. The Spirit of Jesus is as much God, as divine, eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent omniscient as Jesus himself as God, the father himself. If you're not familiar with church world or Christian stuff for the Bible, the Bible's claim God, when he introduces himself to us, he says, I am one God, three persons. I have relationship within myself, father, son, and Holy spirit. The father plans the rescue. The son accomplishes the rescue. The spirit applies and works it into your life and into the world. When the spirit comes he is every bit God as Jesus, every bit God as God, the father, but he, just like the father, just like the son comes in humility. It was Jesus who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And when we say the spirit of Jesus, we don't mean it's like, you know, that, that the Holy Spirit is somehow less than Jesus and kind of like is, is, you know, comes out of Jesus. The spirit of Jesus, in a sense, it was this spirit that animated every movement of Jesus's life in his 33 years. This Jesus sustained him, comforted him in his moments of weakness. He was conceived through this spirit. He was raised up by this spirit. Jesus is continually talking about the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he comes in humility. He prefers to be with the weak. He fills a room with his presence. And perhaps importantly, most importantly of all, he is content to not be the center of attention. And that is what will pull at your heartstrings if you watch the Bill Murray documentary. It will make you love the man, even if you've never seen any of his stuff. And the reason you will love it is you will see him content not to put himself in the center of everything. The way you'd expect a celebrity. Look, there's plenty of nice celebrities. Yeah, I'll let you kind of, you, know, you lower people, come over here and get a picture with me. But then I'm going back into my world And I'm certainly not going to come into your world and delight in your world and ask you, what are you about? That's why Bill Murray has that impact that he does on people. When the spirit comes, he is content to let the center of attention be on someone else. Who then is the center of attention for the Holy Spirit? When you look down through this passage and in the next 26 chapters coming in the book of Acts, we'll look at this fall. Where do you see his attention? on jesus the one he loves we'll see that in just a moment really quickly where we begin to depart from that metaphor this is not south by southwest when this happens this is jerusalem in an upper room in a tiny little room in jerusalem on a day called pentecost there's some people here who with me got to go to israel this summer on a trip with passages and we were in jerusalem on pentecost This year, they still celebrate. It's a national holiday. Nobody goes to work that day. Pentecost, uh, for Jews today, is still celebrated. It was celebrated here, and it brought everybody back to the temple from the furthest reaches, Rome, Egypt, Libya, Syria, Turkey, Asia. They all came back to, to square one on Pentecost to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. That's what the holiday was about, that first tomato on the vine. That first crop. And it wasn't just a celebratory feast that God has provided for us again. It was, it was a, a, a kind of a festival of, of dependence. And Lord, provide the rest of the crop too. These first fruits of this harvest, but bring the rest of the harvest too. It is no accident. It is no coincidence that the day that Jesus pours out his spirit on his church is the day of Pentecost, celebrating the first fruits of a harvest that will go on until the day Jesus comes back and is still going on tonight. Celebrating the first fruits that are being picked that are ripe for harvest and looking to this God to bring in the rest of the harvest. When I say harvest, I mean the last sentence drew red and that day 3000 souls were added to them. That's the harvest that Pentecost is about now. God gathering Weaklings. The unnoticed, the unimpressive, the spiritually bankrupt, the, the the sickened by sin, the co-conspirators in rebelling against him, him gathering those people up as his harvest. This particular room, though, the very first few verses out of Acts two, these men remember what they're like from what we said last week. I'm not going to repeat it all, but they're weak, they're scared, they're confused, they still don't understand what all's going on. Maybe more questions than answers in their mind at this point. And Jesus tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait. And so they do. And when the spirit comes, he starts helping them and he starts serving them. And what they say uh, as they begin to kind of speak and serve others is that this spirit, when he comes and he's come now, he has come past tense. Now, when the spirit comes He comes and it's like the storm the other day in Athens. Everything gets wet. There is no discrimination. He falls, this spirit falls in fullness and in power on men and women. On the free and the status in society and the slaves and the nobodies and the oppressed in society. On the old and wise and mature and the young and immature that you would not expect the spirit of Jesus to be giving attention to. He falls in power across the board without discrimination and he serves and he's content to let the attention lie in another. I said, we'd come back to that. What do I mean by that? If you go through the book of acts and you do a case study of every single person empowered by the Holy spirit and you say, what are they talking about? You know what the answer is every time Jesus Christ, his 33 years, of serving and loving and obeying and talking his death on the cross for sinners and his resurrection being vindicated and proven innocent and being proven to be everything. He said he was God King sovereign, the authority over our lives. That's what they all talk about. So how does the spirit serving these other people in this moment, The first thing is he is undoing one of the biggest obstacles that sin does, which is drive us apart from one another. What's happening here is not, I've been hearing all these stories lately about um, Google is saying they're right on the cusp of having earbuds that, you know, someone can speak to you in Mandarin and in real time, it's coming back to you in English. You know, connecting with the server, translating and coming back. They're trying to work kinks out. Is that all that's going on here when it says the spirit gave them utterances and they were speaking in tongues? Was this some weird charismatic thing where it's what he's talking about when they're speaking in tongues is Peter doesn't speak Arabic. I don't know what people at the time, uh, you know, in in the, the rural parts of Rome were speaking. What did the barbarians speak? I don't know. What the point is, is that each person was hearing the gospel of Jesus in their vernacular in intelligible ways that made sense to them in a way that did not need translation. So there was a pragmatic reason for it. They don't speak the same language. Most of them would be Greek speakers, not all of them. So they're hearing it in their own language as if to say those of you who are, who speak multiple languages, or if you're here as an international student, you might speak English, but when someone speaks to you in your native tongue, doesn't it mean a world more? It feels like home immediately. It's a signal that we know each other. You belong. That's what's going on too. God's signaling to the world something new is happening. My people is no longer just Israel. My people is every nation, every ethnicity, every region of the world without discrimination. And he's speaking to people in a way that they can understand, which is great news, friends. I know some of you might show up here tonight and you're you're confused about how does all the stuff in the Bible fit together? I don't even know who God is. What does this grace thing mean? What am I supposed to do? What does he do? God is one who is actually concerned to speak to you in a way that you can understand. He is not a tease. He is not playing cat and mouse games with you. Just before you understand, he withdraws and you're left to yourself. He has been over backwards over thousands of years through 66 books and 40 authors to speak to you in ways that make sense to you. He is for you, knowing who he is and what he's like and what he has done for you, not against that. He's not hiding, he's revealing. And we see it in this miraculous way on Pentecost on that night. The last thing that's going on in this moment with the tongues is a a curse that God had put on humanity And Genesis 11 is being unraveled and undone in a really huge way. Babel, the word for us means incoherent language. When you're babbling, you're not making sense. Babel was a place. And it was a place where human beings put their heads together and said, uh, we want to control God. We want him to be kind of another tool in our hands where we get to call the shots and we're going to build a tower to get to him. And God is saying, the longer they collaborate on this spiritual suicide mission, the more hardened their hearts are going to get and the more they're going to think this is actually possible to get your way to God. And so he shuts the whole thing down. He confuses the language and engineers can't build something when they can't talk to each other. And so they scatter until the day that he would reverse that and bring unity to his people by undoing the effects of that. What does this mean for us? What does this mean that God is concerned to speak to you in ways that you And I can understand. It means that he's intent to get through to you. And it means that he wants to wrestle with the other stories and the other narratives that you and I are prone to believe all the time. Here's a, here's a key thing you want to, you want to keep your eyes out for in Acts two, even to understand the spirit's work. You need the spirit's help. You need God's grace to even understand and recognize God's presence. And here's why. Um, All of us tend to think of our lives as a scene. And it's like a scene in a movie. Like, let's say someone gives you a three-minute shot of a scene in a two-hour movie. And the way we think of ourselves is pretty myopic. We think about our lives as this little thing, and we have to embed it in some other narrative or story for it to make sense, right? If you just have a three-minute scene, it's incoherent. It makes no sense. What does this mean? What does that mean? What's this theme? I didn't understand that illusion. So we embed our little tiny lives into these bigger stories and narratives and scripts to try to make sense of things. And these stories and these narratives are everything from pluralism, kind of the story of the day, of you do you. There's really, uh, who, who is someone to tell you that they have a, a corner on the truth? Who's the God of the Bible to say that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Come on, like, let's dial it back a little bit. And remember, that's just one perspective. There's multiple perspectives. And that's actually a very appealing narrative to our hearts a lot of times because it absolves us of any responsibility. You don't have to worry anymore about, is what he's saying true or not? There's an out. Yeah, it might be true, might not. Not that religious. Pluralism is a great narrative that we try to plug our scenes of our lives into this epic mega story so that they're coherent and make sense. Individualism is too. Me as sovereign, I decide what's true, what's not, what I like, what I don't. And we say things, we think things, we feel things like, I just can't believe in a God who fill in the blank. I just like to believe in a God who fill in the blank. I just believe that. You hear what we're doing? We're fabricating a God in real time. We're literally making him up as we go. It's the Mr. Potato Head if you played with that as a kid. You get to put the eyes wherever you want. You get to put the ears wherever you want. You can move around the hands. And we do this. Trying to bring meaning and purpose and depth and substance to our lives. We try to stitch together a story where these scenes make sense and bring us joy or bring us hope. Whatever ism it is, secularism, pluralism, individualism, consumerism, I'm a consumer, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. We fit our lives into these stories to try to make sense. Here's the the danger, here's the problem. Those stories become authoritative to us. They become authoritative to us. They tell you the truth. They tell you what to believe and what to disbelieve. They tell you what to doubt. They're the authority in your life, and we look to them by faith and say, what should I do? Is this real or is this not real? And they give us our answer, and we go on. Here, where does this happen in this passage? Every group that's ever assembled is going to be a mix of people who believe and people who don't. Cynics and the faithful, whatever. But these people in verse 13, they say others were mocking what was happening as the apostles are preaching the gospel in each person's native tongue. And it says there were people there saying, this isn't a work of God. This isn't anything special at all. These guys are drunk. Peter says it's 9 a.m. and it's not Athens on a Saturday. They're not drunk. That's not a plausible explanation on this particular day. But what's going on? These people are reaching a conclusion of a clear, plain movement of God right in front of their face and their interpretive grid, their narrative, the story that they're fitting their lives into to make sense of everything is rendering the verdict. There's no God here. There's no power here. This is just religious stuff. These guys are drunk. And we say that too. I can deal with this later. There's nothing to see here. This is just what that person believes. There's no authority over my life. So I don't really have to wrestle with this stuff and deal with this stuff. And I'm going to tell you now, I'm going to give you a teaser for about four minutes from now when we finish. If you have an out, if you see an exit door, when the living God himself is directing, he's talking to you, directing his attention right at you and saying, this is who I am and this is who you are. And this is why you need me. And you have an out, you will never hear him. You will never be able to discern God's clear as day work right in front of your nose. You will always misinterpret it, always chalk it up to something else, always so easily dismiss it. Has that ever like shocked you? It shocks me how easily dismissible Jesus seems in our day and age. Do you know why? We are a moment in time so filled with faith in other authorities and other stories. He is so easy to just not think about. Why? Because we're saturated in other narratives that are not true, that have never lifted a finger to help you, that leave you with you stuck in a dead end, in a cul de sac. This is why God is so intent not just to tell you the truth, He is intent to deconstruct worldviews, stories, narratives that are keeping you from Him and keeping you from seeing what's happening in front of you. Do you know what's happening tonight? I don't know in a big picture way what the spirit of Jesus is doing. I know one thing, and you do too. He is talking to you right now through his word. How are you interpreting right this moment? Man, This is boring. I don't get half the stuff he's talking about. Netflix, 30 minutes, I'm there. Cookout, 10 minutes, I'm there, whatever. How are you interpreting this moment right now? Do you see God clearly on the move, coming to you and saying, we've got to talk, we've got to do business together. I want you to look with me at this thing and for us to deal with it. Or is it just i I'm going to check this place out. We got more than we bargained for when the Bible is opened. We usually have two responses and I'm just going to say them perpetual perplexity. Some of you are just confused. Like, I mean, till 24, I was so scared to say in my Bible studies, in my small groups, I don't know what's going on here. I don't. And it was my little secret. Did you see how many times Luke goes out of his way? They were perplexed, amazed, bewildered, astonished. What does this mean? What does this mean? What should we do? Perplexity, perpetually. Unless the spirit of God comes to you and you say, I don't just need you to save me. I need you to open my eyes that I might even see you. My ears that I can even hear you. Or dismissive denial, a hostility. There is no truth to this, and I'm certain about it. All those isms we talked about earlier. Well, here's where we end. Did you know there's a third way? We're not just left with the options. As God kind of comes to you and and speaks to you in ways that you can understand and talks about Jesus, that's the center of the attention, what he has done, past tense, not what he wants you to do, but what he has done. He talks to you about this, and you say, well, what are we to do with this. There's a third way. We're not just left with perpetual perplexity or dismissive denial. By God's mercy, he has opened up a third way. And that third way is sit and listen and let his word in. Let it sneak in. Let it burglarize your bankrupt worldview That has left you filled with anxiety, filled with depression, filled with hopelessness, filled with this. No amount of purchases online can fulfill it. No number on the scale can fulfill it. No way my hair or my nose or my legs look will fulfill it. And you let him get into there and reorder it and mess it up and set it right side up. Look, reality is not a story with you and me at the center of it. Drew read it. I'm not going to reread it. But all these little speeches, when when Peter says, the prophet Joel said, in those days, this is what God's going to do. David, a prophet, said, this is what the Messiah is going to be like. He's saying Jesus was the center of history all along. This isn't something new. He's always been the center. This is an ancient story and modern, too. But he's always been the centerpiece of it. And he is kind of the interpretive key. If you want to know what history is about. You have to know what jesus is about if you want to know what you are about the scene of your life you want to know what story will make sense of you finally this and only this that's the bible's claim you can take that you can let it in as truth you can reject it you can deny it you can remain skeptical of it but that's what it's saying is come to me and i'll make sense of you come to me and i'll make sense of the world come to me and i'll make sense of god we need a story far bigger than ourselves and a person far bigger than ourselves to make sense of ourselves. What should you do in response to this? What should you do when. Don't miss the significant, the geographic sitting events. This is happening in Jerusalem. And we're sitting in Athens, Georgia, which is well beyond the ends of the earth in their mental state at that time. They're in the Middle East. They didn't even know this land existed. We are at the ends of the earth, and you're hearing in English. The good news of Jesus and what he has accomplished for you to be received as a free gift. What should you do in response? Two places you should spend your time, I think. Focusing on who Jesus is and focusing on who he says you are. We live in a non-confrontational age because the individual is God, right? If I am God, you dare not question me. Don't challenge me. Don't say that something I've done is wrong because it'll, it'll crush me. But here's, here's the deal, y'all. What if God comes to you in kindness and compassion to tell you who you are? And what if there's some bad news in there? But what if the bad news is unto the goal of helping you hear good news for the first time ever? These, many of these people, 3,000 of them listened and they're hearing their worlds fall apart. Their tiny little stories, their little narratives are crumbling. And they said, it's not been all about me. It's always been all about him. And they're, just as Peter's talking, the wheels are churning. The spirit is working in their minds. And they're reevaluating everything. And they're saying, Peter just said, I crucified Jesus like twice, pretty clearly. This Jesus whom you crucified. Whom you were a co conspirator of ignoring, dismissing, rejecting, saying there's nothing special about him, misinterpreting, mishandling. Before you can hear good news, you must own the bad news that what Peter says about me is true. I have been a co conspirator in what is worst about the world, and I have spent my life running from God, rejecting him. I'm not a good person, I'm a dark person who needs someone to save me from myself. That's what they meant when they said they were cut to the heart. The word got in and it cut past the rocky, hard-hearted, self-righteous, always making excuses. It's not that bad, Lord. I'm still a good person. It cut. And they said, what must we do to be saved? What a great question. You know the spirits at work in your life if you're asking God questions and not making declarations to him. It's not that bad. I didn't go that far. If you're coming to him with questions and humility, oh, the spirit's at work in you. And you say, Lord, what must I do to know you, to hear you, to see you, to be made new, to be made friends with you? Oh, buckle up. Because God has brought grace to your doorstep. If you're still wrestling with God, arguing with him, ignoring him, declaring things at him, I just can't believe in you if... You need mercy. (laughs) I don't know if you need it more than the rest of us. You are in a very desperate, dangerous place. Your heart has still not been penetrated and cut. Friends, the good news is this. God is willing to work in your heart, and he's willing to start tonight. He's willing to hear a weak prayer. He's willing to move. He's willing to clarify who he is. He's willing to embed your tiny little life into his life, your itty-bitty little story into his big story. He's willing to redeem you. He's willing to forgive you. He's willing to make you his son or daughter. The question is, will you ask for his help to respond to what I've been talking about? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you have, uh, you've sent your spirit out and then these these men would go and, and women would go across the ancient world in those first few hundred years and all the way up till today. And the story they were telling is the exact same that we heard tonight, that Jesus Christ, who knew not sin, has become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. I pray for clarity, for piercing clarity, Holy Spirit. And you are not relying on me talking. You can do this tonight when they're asleep. You can do this tomorrow, next week, next month, out of the blue. But we pray for your invasion. We pray for your power that you would pierce through to us, cut that you might humble us, that we might look to you with desperate, needy, hungry eyes and say, Lord, come. We need mercy. We need help. Save us. Do that work, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake, because you love him and you love to see him work. Amen.